the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As we near the 4th of July, are Americans less patriotic? And then we're joined again by Stephen Barr, pastor of Cast Member Church. The abuse investigation of a Dove Award-winning worship leader. And later, we're joined by Kathy Craig from Decision Point. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome to the Common Good here on 11, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, I clearly already can't talk. I got 4th of July on my mind I mean, the weekend. That's, you know, that's what was happening to me already on Monday. So I feel you. I feel your pain. Right. We're, just, we're just ready for those fireworks and hot dogs. That's Tell all it you is. What, you are not is. ready for hot dogs. You just lied to our people you within the first two minutes. You keep holding this against me. I feel like you need to let it go a little bit. I, I... We'll share a hot dog together. <laughs> that's how that we is... make peace over this we have to share a hot dog. i don't want to share a hot dog with you brian there you go there you go so uh aubrey is excited for other reasons today one we're going to be joined again uh later in the hour by Stephen barr he is Stephen the pastor barr. of a church called cast member church it is the disney church I on mean, the grounds of disney my, world he has my dream job like i can't even believe it and his wife has worked at epcot forever and so she also has my dream job basically they're living the life i want to live what people don't know is every time we have him on, Aubrey follows up with a thank you and a resume. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, just, hey, are you hiring? Hey, are you hiring? So we're excited. Stephen has a new book out and we are excited to have him join us. But Aubrey, first, it's Fourth of July weekend coming up. Uh, you and I have talked before our love of our country. Go to the parade, wave the flag. So I don't want to pour cold water on this, but with that in mind, I did want to read something I saw over at CNN. Let me just give you the background of a new study. It says American patriotism hits a new low on the eve of the July 4th celebration. uh, Pride in being American has hit a record low in the new Gallup polling. 38 percent of adults said they were, quote, uh, extremely proud to be Americans, the lowest ever measure by Gallup when asking that exact same question since 2001. It's well below the average of 55% since the question has been asked. And actually, mm-hmm. it's more Republicans than Democrats who answered, who, who kind of said they're not extremely oh, proud. Oh, that's actually a little surprising to me. Yeah, and we can parse what do you mean by extremely proud versus yeah. proud. But I think the bigger thing is... Uh, it what it has been at one number for a while, and now it has dipped. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. I would like to end this segment encouraging patriotism of people, but doing yeah. it in the right way. But yeah. what do you think when you read this study? Well, I also want to point out something that CNN points out, which is that this poll was fielded at a really difficult time. It's from June first uh, to the the uh, June 1st to the 20th, and it was conducted like right after all of the mass shootings took place, like Buffalo, New York, Uvalde. So I would say in general, there was a lack of, I mean, it's not been that long, but there was a major lack of trust, I think, in our leaders and in our nation 
at that particular moment in time. That said, it doesn't totally surprise me. Like with everything that you and I talk about on the show, um, all of the vitriol, all of the division. I think what I am surprised by, though, is that it's the Republicans. I would yeah. have thought, and I'm not sure why this is some kind of bias in my mind. I would have thought the Republicans were still very proud to be an American and would have stand very firm on that. But maybe it's that they're seeing change they don't want to see. I don't know. I, You know, it's interesting is I, when Kevin and I lived in Zambia, our mentor, a guy named Lawrence Tempway, really close with Kevin. He died from cancer a few years ago. He was one of – I feel like he taught me more about patriotism than anyone else I've ever met mm. because he was – he loved Zambia. And, I mean, he came to school at Wheaton. He was committed to going back to Zambia. He was committed to making a difference in his nation. He was very, very uh, – like a prophetic critiquer of the corruption in mm. his nation. And he would do so boldly. He would do so loudly. He would do so publicly. And so it was this person who, with such deep love for his country wanted to see change. And I always admired that because it was like, I feel like that's the patriotism we need in America. Like we need, we, I, I think love is what breeds change, not hate. And so to mm. be able to say, look, we love this nation. There are freedoms we have here that like we, you know, we grow privileged to and cold to, I think, but we can't ever get past what an amazing place this is to live. Um, it, both its beauty and just what America stands for. And also we can stand as prophetic critiquers of the things we see are very wrong in the nation as well. Like both things can be true and can come yeah. out of love. And I think need to be true. Now, to answer one of your questions, I think my guess is the reason Republicans are less in this is because there's a Democrat president. And if a Republican president comes in next time, I think these are going to The answers think, might be different. Yeah, I, I agree. But let's talk patriotism um, because we have, I would say, rightfully so critique things like that fall under the umbrella of Christian nationalism. Uh, you and I have been very open about some of the things that worry us and disturb us that we see going on around our country and with the church and the meshing. But with that said, I think we would both consider ourselves very patriotic people. Uh, you, you shared a story. When I, when I did Wheaton in the Holy Lands way back in college, I remember uh, we were in another country on the 4th of July. And I remember there being, even as a college kid, this strange almost longing to be home on the 4th of July. Oh. Like, oh, this is our, this is the, the day that we're American, you know, all of this stuff. So you, I think you started to do it really well, but I'd love to hear... What does um, appropriate patriotism for mm. the Christian look like? Not even for the American, mm. but for the American mm. Christian. As we move into yeah. the 4th of July, what does appropriate uh, patriotism look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you kind of, uh, your mind, at least mine, is drawn to Jeremiah. And it's different because the Israelites were living in exile. Many of us are not exiled. Like, this is our place of birth and where we've grown up. But, you know, there's that very famous passage of scripture where God calls them, even while they are in captivity and in exile, to, you know, plant gardens and give their children away in marriage. And those yes. kids have kids and contribute to the flourishing of the city, really. And it's this beautiful language of just total flourishing from the ground up, like buildings being built, co companies being you know, thriving, restaurants happening, children being married. I mean, mm -hmm. and I think ultimately that's a 
that's a beautiful vision of patriotism. Like it's not about where we get kind of messed up is where it becomes like America is our God. And that's, that's messed up, but really it's, are we, are we contributing to the flourishing of our neighborhoods, our communities, the people around us, our nation, that's good patriotism in my mind that's balanced with a very strong biblical Christian ethic. Yeah, I think um, when we recognize primarily that we are citizens of God's kingdom, that's right? It. like he's our Lord, this is our kingdom, yeah. I think then we are set up to be rightfully uh, patriotic mm. in the sense of like, hey, but even in under the lordship of Christ, I love America. I love yeah. living here. I Amen. love the freedoms. I want it to flourish. We mm-hmm. want to, um, we want the best for it. But I think you brought up something really important. I think part of what it means to be patriotic that people miss is also being willing to critique and have hard conversations yeah. for the betterment uh, of, it's a little bit of a bad analogy, but if if in our marriages, we're not willing to have the hard conversations and try to correct what is wrong in it, it's not going to do any good for our marriages. If in our churches, we're never re- willing to be circumspect and say, you know what, we don't do that well, or we right. got to improve right. that then that's not being a good, like, that's not helpful. And I think it's the same in terms of patriots. A lot of times when people see protests or they hear critiques, they're like, well, uh, you know, then get out of the country. Why do you hate America? You're like, no, I'm saying this because I love I America. I love this country. I want to see her reach her full potential. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So we encourage you this weekend, go to the parade. Yes. Have a, have a hot dog in, in honor of Aubrey and of our country. <laughs> Uh, wave the flag and be proud to be an American, That's right. uh, but then also continue to fight that America will be its best possible version mm, of what it can be. Good. And remember, remember that you're ultimately a, a citizen uh, of God's kingdom. Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined. Uh, Aubrey, I would say it's fair to say by the person on our, uh, who comes on our show regularly who has your dream job. I, I the, mean, the, right. We joked before about how I'm sending my resume as soon as this is over. That's right. Mm-hmm. Your husband does not know that. We are talking right. about Stephen is- Barr. Uh, he is the lead, past, uh, lead pastor of Cast Member Church down in Orlando, Florida, and also the author of a new book called Kingdom Influence. Stephen, how are you doing today? I am great. Thanks for having me back on. It's a joy. Oh, it's absolutely our Mm -hmm. pleasure. And we jokingly said that you've got Aubrey's dream (laughs) job. If anybody listens to our show, they know Aubrey's love for Disney. So why don't you remind (laughs) us of the church you started and the ministry you're a part of? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, Cast Member Church is a church that's designed specifically for those who originally worked for the Walt Disney World Resort, 74,000 people who worked for the Walt Disney World Resort because of their unique culture, unique schedules, et cetera. But over the last 10 years, we've expanded to every Disney park around the world and are now located on six continents. So it's it's not just a little Disney church at at Walt Disney World. It's now a movement. And uh, I'm very honored to have played a small part in that. And Stephen, you've told us your story before, but for listeners who may not know, I would love to hear how God even birthed this. Because, you know, I know your <laughs> your wife obviously was mm-hmm. a, a cast member at Epcot, but like, at what point were you like, let's start a church? <laughs> that actually, wow, Aubrey, that's a great question because that actually goes back to 1991 hmm. when I was a Disney cast member and I was a musician. And I remember one day thinking, there's no church 
for someone like me because Disney never closes. There's no day off. So Sunday or Saturday <laughs> or Wednesday, there was no opportunity. And I just remember thinking, wow, there should be a church here. And, uh, you know, life took its uh, natural course. I uh, went into other music part uh, parts of the music business. Ended up finally in the ministry and in, in worship music, et cetera. And um, then about uh, 12 years ago, I started getting to that age where I really felt like God wanted to do something new uh, through me. I wasn't sure what it was, but someone asked about the idea of, of how would I feel about planting a church. Hmm. And I, w- I was ready for it. I thought, yeah, I could do that. But I thought it was going to be San Antonio, Texas, where we were living. Mm. Okay. And so we we planted a church at, in San Antonio and it was fun. It did really well. It still goes well. But I was bored. I mean, I, 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 I maybe some people can relate to this, but I was, we, we had all this, this success or fruitfulness, but I was bored. And one day, one person just mentioned to me, Stephen, how do you feel about planting a church at Disney? You just, that's oh, all you man. talk, that's all you talk about. You, we call it mouse blood. You have mouse blood. <laughs> I have that. I definitely have that. Yeah, exactly. But what's funny is that that very moment I remembered that thought. And I think God, that was actually a seed planted wow. so many years earlier. Wow. And so we, we plant, we, you know, it took a little bit of time and to make the transition, but we did. And my wife got a job at Epcot and, uh, 10 years later, we're still here. Amazing. Oh, that's awesome. And mm-hmm. uh, Stephen's got a book called Kingdom Influence, Three Proven Keys to Revealing Jesus in a Skeptical and Suspicious uh, World. So Stephen, remind us, Kingdom Influence, what's the heart behind the book? What's the message of the book? Oh my gosh. Uh, the message behind the book is really simple. Um, our lives are the best evidence that Jesus is Amen. worth knowing. I mean, mm. uh, we can, we can, I, I truly believe that the church does not have a problem with articulating the gospel. Hmm. We, we, I mean, if you know John 3.16, you can articulate the gospel. If you can answer yeah. the whys of John 3.16. But we really have a problem living the gospel, living hmm. uh, Christ-like, because we live in such a segmented society now of if you're for this or you're against that, or if you oppose this or you're being canceled, or and, and we, we categorize everybody. And I look in scripture and I see Jesus everywhere he went, he attracted every kind of person you can imagine. And, and we have that same Jesus that lives within us now. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of wherever we go, we can carry that kingdom influence. It's not just what we know, but it's how we live it out. And we've discovered three basic, not really rocket science keys, but three proven keys here at Walt Disney world, uh, that has helped us to grow a church and specifically among those who are indifferent, skeptical, suspicious, mm. that those are the people we love. It's like, I, I wow. love skeptical and suspicious people because Jesus does too. <laughs> oh, and, and Stephen, can you unpack, I mean, I, I know you don't want to give away your whole book. Can you unpack those three <laughs> keys? Because I, I'm imagining too, a lot of our listeners, there's some idea out there about Disney World being maybe antithetical, antithetical to the gospel mm. or like the culture there would just be like, absolutely sure. not. So I would love to hear those three keys from your perspective. Well, that's uh, thanks for asking. Um, first of all, Disney's a secular company. They, they, yeah. I mean, they're they're going to make decisions that are not based on biblical principles, right? And and, and so we don't hold them to a sta- a biblical standard. So we have to recognize that they are they're doing their thing, but we are missionaries within that context. And mm. as I said earlier, 
it's, it's learning how to, it's really about learning how to connect with people who don't know Jesus. And mm-hmm. it's not about memorizing or uh, a certain scriptures or passing out tracts or anything like that. It's about using what God has already placed in us. And I, and these three proven keys are very simple. We have got to become really good at looking for the image of God in every human being. Good. Because if they exist, if they exist, they bear his image some way. Now, they may That's not right. agree with me politically. They may not agree with me sociologically. We may be diametrically opposite in everything that we believe. But somehow, some way, they possess an image that God has intended to blossom. And mm, we have beautiful. the privilege. We have the privilege as spirit-filled people to look for that and recognize it. So mm. I call that essence. The essence of a human being is, is that image of God. The second little key that's that's we've proven is this idea of cultivating trust. And that's that's asking, we want the world to be vulnerable with us, but yeah. it's very hard for us to take our Christian masks off and say, mm. well, I have doubts or I have fears or I wrestle with this temptation and I battle that or I've fallen down here. But the fact of the matter is we bond with other people through our shared weaknesses, not mm. our strengths. Mm. That's great. So when someone, when you, so when you're talking with somebody and you're able to say, oh my gosh, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're feeling. I've been there. We cultivate this trust. And out of that trust, and now remember, we've already recognized the essence of somebody. So they know we value yep. them. Yeah. So now we're opening ourselves up to them, sh- saying that we are walking the same road together. I'm mm. here, you're there, but but we have the, we, we, we get tripped up the same way. So and good. then once that trust is formed, once that trust is formed, then the, the third word is hope. And I, mm-hmm. I just simply look at that as we have the privilege of modeling Jesus's perfect love. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it's a love that will never abandon us. It's a wow. love that will never turn its back on us. And we as human beings have this, we can't help it, but we have our limits. The idea yeah. of unconditional love is a foreign concept to us. We just, we all have totally. our limits, but, but with Jesus, with, when we have Jesus, we can pour that unconditional love out. And when we model that perfect love, the gospel that we articulate has credibility. Mm, yes. So good. And yes. that's the, that's the difference. Those are the three, um, essence, <clears throat> trust, and hope. Wow. Oh, it's really good, so Stephen. Again, good, we'd Stephen. encourage people to go get the book Kingdom Influence by Stephen Barr. Before we let you go, uh, remind us briefly, how does the Disney Church work? Like, it can't be one <laughs> gathering. You all come. So I, I hope people might be wondering, why does this even work? Well, yeah. the, real qu- the real quickly answer at the end here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. No, it's... um. Uh, we're a movement. And so we mm-hmm. operate in what are called communities. A lot of it happens online, uh, but we also have local expressions in each park location around the world, and they operate on their own rhythms. Uh, there are people that I shepherd, and then those people shepherd mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. I'm not a control freak, so there's a lot of <laughs> autonomy that happens because think about it. Disneyland Paris has a completely different culture than, than yeah. Disneyland Anaheim. Right. And so, so we have learned to ebb and flow and I just hold on loosely, but mm. we keep investing, but we don't have like a central worship gathering, but right. don't, don't get me wrong. We worship. I mean, Romans 12, yeah. one, we are yeah. constantly everything we do. So it looks different. It, it acts differently, but it looks a lot like Jesus. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so thankful for you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I do need to ask one. I know we're over time, but I want to ask one more question because this will mess with Aubrey. Oh, no. I asked you oh, this no. a long time ago. 
Uh, you have one day to go to one Disney park, and you, but you can only go to one. Oh. Which one are you choosing? Oh, my gosh. Um, huh. it, you know, it depends on the day you ask me. But, I would say, <laughs> but, but you know what? I, I would say I'm partial to Epcot. One, because yeah. there's so mm. many new things that are being built right now. Yeah. Uh, so many wonderful things. But I'm a, I'm a fan of, of international uh, ministry and internationals. Uh, the, the good news is all those international young people are coming back to Epcot and just starting in the next couple of months. So walking through World Showcase in Epcot is is probably one of the best things I love. That's my favorite place to prayer walk is awesome. to oh, walk, so am- cool. among, walk among those countries and talk to those young people from all over the world. Awesome. So Epcot awesome. today. That's awesome. Aubrey, are you good? Are you good with Epcot? Yeah, Aubrey, oh, are you I'm good definitely with good with Epcot. <laughs> I, I would have said Epcot too, so definitely. Oh. Nice again. Uh, good choice. Stephen Barr is the lead pastor of Cast Member Church and the author of Kingdom Influence: Three Proven Keys to Revealing Jesus in a Skeptical and Suspicious World. Stephen, this is always so fun. Get the guest room ready for Aubrey to come on down, and uh, <laughs> we're grateful it. for you. Thanks. God bless Absolutely. you. Guys. Thanks for being here. You too. My pleasure. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. At the podcast, you can find the time we just spent with Stephen Barr, one of our favorite guys. That was so fun. The pastor, lead pastor of a movement called Cast Member Church that is across the Disney parks um, all across the world. And so excited by what he's doing. Go pick up his new book called Kingdom Influence. Uh, Aubrey, something else we do online, uh, particularly at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, is a little something we like to call the social media water cooler. The social media water cooler, it's like what we say, you know, back in the day, back when people a generation ago, right. they would gather around the water cooler and talk about events of the day, talk about the shows that were on last night, whatever else is in the news. Well, now social media kind of serves that purpose in our culture. And so we have started a little weekly segment that we call the social media water cooler, where we throw out a question and uh, hopefully people respond to it. And uh, this week, did they respond ever so much? Rest assured that I was on the Internet within minutes, registering my disgust throughout the world. We got a lot of responses. This was a very fun this one, was. Brian. So the question... You, you brought up... Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, I brought up to you the other day, I believe it was yesterday, that it was the 15th mm-hmm. anniversary... Uh, it was the birthday of the iPhone, and you and I right. started to discuss how much life was different, how much it has changed since the iPhone. And so you thought it would be fun to, to ask our listeners, um, I believe, life before. Ask him, tell us exactly what the question was, and we'll go yeah, through here, some of the fun here's what, responses. Yeah, Here's what we asked. It's the 15th birthday of the iPhone. For our social media water cooler question this week, we want to know what you remember about life before the iPhone slash smartphone. Let us know. And, you know, we gave some options. And, Brian, the responses came in quickly, but they were so, like, they will bring you back. Yes. Like, the amount of responses will bring you back. Okay, so so here's the first one. I remember how you had to text by pressing the number buttons multiple times to get the letters you My wanted. Goodness. And then this person says, but I did it enough that I could text without looking at the screen. Seems crazy that I spent that much time to send a text now, though. That is true. It's so I forgot true. about that. I remember my first yes. phone being all confused and being like, okay, wait, if I press that once, it's like L, twice, M, three. Right. And, and doing right. it. But then you did know those people who are, they were like, and they could just do it really fast. And 
Yes. The buttons were really small, so like if your fingers, uh-huh. it, you know, you're big, yeah, you're like, ah, I messed it up again. No, that's uh-huh. I forgot about that. I know I had forgotten about that. And somebody else kind of similarly said, yeah, my kids could text with the phone in their pockets just by feeling the buttons because it was frowned upon for them to have their phones out. So So true. That is so wild to me that that happened. Um, This guy is talking about those. He he remembers blissful times when you couldn't be found on a weekend. You know what I mean? Like you didn't always have your phone with you, I think is the the point in that. This one's really funny. This will bring you back, Brian, to our day and age. Okay. Uh, Calling time and temp. Whose number I still remember. This I didn't know that. Just to hear the weather if I was born. Oh, you don't know time and temp? No, no. Oh, yeah. You would. So we. I did this all the time. I can't, It was like star 63. Okay. Like it was something like that. And you dial it. It would be like, the time is, the temperature is. <laughs> and it was literally, it was called time and temp. And you would just do it because you were like bored out of your mind or something. So that's funny. You don't remember time and temp. This person also says getting grounded because I went over my... 30 minutes on my cell phone plan. (laughs) Oh, I can remember when we first had, and this wasn't even at the beginning of the iPhone, but when the plans were much more unlimited and it was like, like that was, you're trying to do math in your head. Like you're like, you're Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind trying to be like, (laughs) I'm going to need this. this." So your, your time and temp one reminded me of, uh, do you remember movie phone? Oh, movie phone! Like you would call this number, yes, and it would you would just get all the times and locations and movies in your area. Of movies, and then there's obviously the funny movie Seinfeld phone. episode where people keep calling Kramer, so he pretends to be movie phone. <laughs> oh, that's and he's funny. like, I don't that. he's like, why don't you tell me the movie you're looking for? <laughs> but yes, movie phone. I forgot about movie phone. I just remember we even had like the newspaper to find out what time the movies yeah. were, and that was like. Yeah, movie phone. Okay, there's always this person. Well, I don't have an iPhone or a smartphone now, so there seems to be a lot of interesting stuff, but I'm doing fine without now it. Now I shall go outside and churn my butter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why? Why, why, why? Okay, this one's good. Uh, knowing but knowing my phone number by how long the distance was after each number you pushed around on a rotary phone. Yep. So this person's going way back to the rotary phone. Do you know yep. what's wild about that is... Uh, I know my phone number and my wife's phone number currently, but mm-hmm. my kids all have phone numbers. My parents, I don't know anybody yeah. else's phone number because they're all in your phone. Yeah, I don't. Right. I don't know my, I don't know my kids, phone which numbers. is a little, I, I know Kevin's, which too. is a little, a little scary up, because right? if you ever were like in an emergency and you had to use someone else's <laughs> phone again, I keep going back to TV episodes. It's the one where Michael Scott <laughs> begs to borrow another guy's phone to call the office. And the guy goes finally and he goes, Oh, you don't have the office in your contacts, do you? <laughs> like, you can't remember. But yeah, we should probably know our kids' phone numbers. At I least, think right? more importantly, you should make sure your kids know your phone number. Your phone number. Right. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's so, no, true. that got me the other they're day. They're the ones in a scary situation. Yeah, that's Because to this really day, funny. I could tell you my home phone number and I, from growing up, and I could tell you probably two or three of my best friends, I could tell you to this day their phone numbers. And it's just because you dialed them uh, all the time, uh, right? You you had to dial them on the true. phone. That's true. Like I can I can definitely remember like my parents, you yeah. know, their like home phone number, which they don't have anymore. But I can remember that. I'm sure I have some best friends' phone numbers in me that I can still remember. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You have to, you had to have numbers memorized. Yep, yep. So what do you yep, okay. what do you like most? Uh, what do you miss most about pre 
um, pre-iPhone days? What What is it for you? Yeah, I think it would be the general... <laughs> <laughs> this sounds so like dramatic, but I think it would be just the general like not an- anxiety. I agree. Like I I actually like the convenience of ordering groceries, looking at time and temp on your phone, knowing when the movies are. I like that. I'm great with that. I think that's awesome. What I don't like is the just the general sense of like people are constantly getting a hold of you and there are four different ways to do it. There's messenger, there's email, there's texting, there's and it just I think I live, and you and I talked about this recently, I think we all live at sort of a low level of anxiety Agreed. simply because of that. And I I miss, I, I don't know what you'd call it, freedom, being untethered, like something like that I miss. And I know there's a reality of like, we'll put your phone away. That still doesn't stop the sort of like presence that the phone yeah. is in your yeah. life. It has become a, a living, breathing I would thing. answer exactly the same way, that you never really feel disconnected. And of course, we talk about this on the show, we can control that to some level. But like you said, it's just not part of our, of our, of our ethos, right? It's not what right, we do. Right. So it right. is that lack of control. Well, we're glad that you joined us on the social yeah. media water cooler. That was a that fun was one. That was a fun one. Brian, I almost, I wrestled with, do we talk mm-hmm. about this? Don't we talk about it? Should we? Shouldn't we? And partly that's because it's another abuse scandal in the church. And I'm tired of covering these stories, but I also feel like the moment we sort of stop doing it is the moment we've not done our job well. So let me tell you, let, let me tell you what I found out at, at Christianity Today. And I've been I've been reading some of this here and there, religion news and other places. But do you remember the singer Chris Rice? I do. And he's yes, a Dove yes. Award winner. Uh, Welcome to our world. His Christmas song, really, really famous, like Christian song, Christian Christmas song. Uh, pretty popular, like um, CMA singer I yeah would say. yeah what's that song right? uh, fly to jesus wasn't that his song yeah oh was that him okay yeah so very very popular am i right about that i'm gonna look that up while you okay, get you the look that here. up while we so the background is this he allegedly groomed students at a kentucky church through back rubs and unaccompanied sleepovers According to an investigation, three men reported that Christian musician Chris Rice took advantage of a youth ministry culture that normalized massages and sleepovers to groom them as teenagers more than 20 years ago. There's an organization called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, found these stories credible, including an account of explicitly sexual contact. Those stories were made public this week. They focused on his involvement at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Kentucky during the height of his music career during the 1990s and the early 2000s. So, Brian, we've got another situation of someone in a position of power as a very popular worship leader, grooming, sexualizing, abusing, I would say, children. And it looks like these are credible accounts. So what do we... (sighs) Go ahead. There was, uh, uh, here, uh, hopefully people don't think this, but some people might be thinking sleepovers and back rubs, like, is that where we've gotten to now? Like, you know, I would tell you this article gets very explicit that it went way beyond that. Yeah. Uh, There's no real gray area here. Let's put it that way. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really dark and sad and, and. All of it. All of it. So anyway, what do we do with this, Aubrey? I think it is yet another reminder 
uh, of of the fallenness of man, the fallenness of our church leaders, mm-hmm. uh, the danger, uh, and danger might be not strong enough of a word, of holding up people as like, this is Chris Rice. He right. wrote, he did write that song I just told you about, by the way, okay. the Fly to Jesus. Yeah. Like, this is Chris Rice. This is Bill Hybels. This is yeah. Carl Lentz. This is, of course, they, they are to be admired and revered and it can't, can't, can't be about the person. It, thank because, you for saying that. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, because we just see over and over again uh, where that leads us. Yeah. And I would I would be remiss not to say that it also cannot be just focused on the celebrity person. Again, yeah. the Chris Rice, yeah. the Bill Hybels, the Carl Lentz or whatever. This is happening in small churches, big churches. Yep. This is happening um, – you know, it feels primarily with male pastors, but it's happening with young and old, yeah. youth ministry, yeah. Uh, yeah. all of it, all yeah. of it. And so I do think um, we need to kind of stare this in the eye. Like we can't, I, I had the same sense. I saw the same article you did and I mm-hmm. ignore, I was like, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think you're wise to say we need to because, yep. because also we could see stuff with like the Southern Baptist Convention, like, all right, we're getting this under control. We're getting a handle on it. This mm-hmm. is never going to go away. Yeah. Uh, in the church, in the Boy Scouts and schools, it, yeah. whatever, as long as there's power dynamics at play. Yeah. Um, this isn't going to go away. And so I would say this speaks yet again to celebrity culture. And it also speaks to if you are a pastor out there, if you're an elder, uh, I, there are things that used to be permissible that just can't be permissible anymore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like when I read here youth ministry culture of sleepovers and back, I think to myself, man, when I was a youth pastor or when I was in youth group as like a high school kid. Yeah. There were things that we did that now look that were completely innocent. Right. That now looking back, I go, gosh, like I can see how if some if put in the hands of somebody right. uh, who was looking to groom, right. who was looking to right. abuse, right. they would have been easy, easy targets. And so mm. um, that's that's the hard reminder of the world that we live in now, like. Um, the youth group games that we play, the way that we do sleepovers mm-hmm. or or the way we background check leaders, mm-hmm. I think it, the, the bar for that is so much higher than it used to be. And that's to say it, us- it should have been higher before. It should have been higher but before. But it wasn't. You yeah. and I are both yeah. fully aware it was yeah. not. Yeah. And so the things that, that we – we just have to be extra careful because we don't want to see our churches become the next in the line of these terrible stories. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's, that's it, Brian. Like we need to take this stuff seriously. We need to take it like this is criminal behavior. Like we yes. can't just kind of go, oh, this won't happen in my church. This won't happen in my ministry. It really is time to up the ante. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, Brian, you know, I was thinking about this even in my own youth mystery, like girls that I would mentor, like I would have not ever one at a time, but like sometimes I'd have like, I was their discipleship leader. I would have like a big sleepover and we'd watch Mary Kate and Ashley movies. Correct. And we, you know, at my, you know, at my house, I'm a married woman, but like, and Kevin wouldn't be there, but like, you know, st- still even that, like that was so fun and that was so innocent that in any person's hand that was evil or bent towards something criminal or abusive could have gone so awry. And so I, I think you're right. Like there are things we should not have gotten away with, but a culture of back rubs, like there's no reason I don't want, no one should be rubbing my teenagers back period. Like if he wants me to fine, but like, 
I, I don't know, no like adult leader. So, so anyway, I, it, these are serious allegations. And I think it's just another story of we have to do better. We cannot raise people up to positions of power so that they're untouchable. And like, oh, church, that like the mantle that we wear as representatives of Jesus, I think we just have to get a lot more serious about our own sickness, our own sin, and uh, things that need to change. Like, I want to think well of people, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a very fine line between thinking the best of people and being naive. Mm, And I think especially in the world of youth ministry and children's ministry, we've assumed everybody in our churches are fine. Everyone's upstanding. Nobody would ever do anything. Right. And so you start cutting corners and you start doing things, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, is it really that big a deal if that leader is alone with that student? Well, it's not until it is. Right. And then right, right. you've ruined the life of a kid and you've created, you've ruined your yeah. church, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, we have to put up the boundaries. We don't need to be scared, but we can't be naive and be That's like, great. oh, that would never happen in my church. Like this is Chris Rice. Like he was, he was one of the biggest at at a time, like you said, a Dove Award winner, a yeah. you know, all of this stuff. And he was clearly a predator and abuser as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And yep. his church, his pastor, the old pastor of his church said like his quote was more or less i'm i'm paraphrasing here like you got to learn from this because i basically this is evil but i never saw it coming never like saw it's it. that and yeah. nobody pastors teachers or anything were beyond the spot where we can go gosh i never could have imagined this happening at our church i right. never could have imagined this happening at my school i never could have I never could have imagined can't be an excuse anymore. Yeah, that's oh, that's that's it, Brian. That's exactly it. We know enough of these stories have come to the surface that that can be not be an excuse anymore. And we are thrilled to be joined by our friend Kathy Craig. Kathy is the director of Church and Ministry Partnerships for Decision Point. She's been on the show before, but for those of you who may not be familiar with Kathy and her ministry, Kathy, uh, welcome. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Kathy, and I actually have had the privilege and joy of being a part of student ministry right here in the Chicagoland area for nearly 30 years, uh, both uh, in the church, uh, with youth there, and then with parachurch organizations. And um, it's just been a joy. You know, for me, there is nothing better than walking alongside a young person as they are deciding who they are, what are they going to believe, and to um, decide if they want to follow Jesus and make that faith their own. Um, It's just been a joy to walk alongside of them, whether it's them deciding to follow Christ for the first time, or whether they're growing in their faith and experiencing the joy of sharing their faith. And so that's what I've been a part of here at our ministry, Decision Point, for about three years now, is to equip and coach students, both middle school and high school students, how they can share their faith, and then how they can do that in school to reach their peers. That's awesome. That's great. And Kathy, as we said, we've had you on a bunch of times because the ministry is really impressive. Uh, And it's always, uh, I just love to hear the story. So why don't you dive down for people who haven't heard you before? How does it work? How are you guys equipping students? And then what are students actually doing to reach their uh, their classmates? Well, I'm sure you can all uh, agree that we see firsthand, you know, just really the pain the brokenness, the sin that is around us. And for this generation, 
um, in their schools, they're often looking around and seeing their peers that are, you know, asking important questions like, what's the point of life? What happens mm. when I die? Is life even mm. worth living? And so for these students to be able to come to their peers and let them know that God has a solution, that he wants to use them. And so what we help students know is what is possible for them to do in their school, even in a public school. And first, it's different ways that they can share their faith to let them know that they are free to share their faith because of the First Amendment. So they can share their faith one-on-one with their peers, um, really at any time, as long as it's not disrupting class instruction. So in the halls, during lunch, after school, all those times, they can have conversations about their relationship with God and what it means Mm. to trust Jesus. They can hand out Bibles, in fact. They can wear a Christian T-shirt. So we let them know that they are free to do that. And then another thing that we let students know that's really exciting, and a lot of times uh, students don't know, is that they can start a Christian club at their Mm. school, you know, even at their public school. And because of the Equal Access Act, that club is to be treated like all the other clubs. So if if the club, uh, the chess club, can have flyers and can have a room that they meet in and can make announcements on the PA about their club, the Christian club can as well. And so this is really exciting because uh, we help students know that they can do that, how to do that, how to talk to the administration Mm -hmm. about that, and then also to make that club really a lighthouse in their school, that they Mm -hmm. can be intentional about reaching out, making a place that is inviting um, other students to come in to hear about who God is, to read the Bible, to get their questions answered. So we help Mm -hmm. students know that. In fact, we even have meeting plans for them to use. And then also we help them know that they can organize a larger event that their club would sponsor that could happen um, hopefully even during lunchtime in a room like the gym that's uh, down the hall from the lunchroom. It's optional, and that's why it's allowed. It's student-led, and that's why it's allowed. And that at that event, they can really invite their whole school to come Mm -hmm. and that they can hear the gospel. That's incredible. Mm. And Kathy, I, I would love to hear any stories, like stories of students who've done this and really seen God at work. Do you have anything you could share with us? Sure, I would love to. There was a student named Matthew, and he decided that he wanted to make a difference at his school. And, you know, that's the case with a lot of Christian students. They see the hurt and brokenness. They want to make a difference, but they don't know where to start. And so our Mm. ministry, Decision Point, helps them. And for Matthew, so he heard about what is possible for him to do at his school, that he could start a Christian club, that that club could sponsor an even larger special event. And so he got to work. We trained Matthew how he could share the gospel and then how he could do this club and have this outreach. And so next thing you know, Matthew had 500 students that came out to this event. Yes, it's true. That's awesome. That's right. That's right. So these 500 students came to Matthew's event. They got to hear about Jesus from from a former NFL player 
and uh, Matthew's pastor, who was also there. Matthew was able to invite his pastor to come onto campus as a guest mm-hmm. of his club. And next thing you know, um, they had dozens of students that accepted Jesus right then and there. Amen. That is That's awesome. That's wild. Uh, yeah, Kathy, uh, so uh, a youth pastor is listening right now. Maybe a student or mm-hmm. a parent is listening right now. How specifically do they get involved with you guys? What's the how, how do they start that process, and what does it look like over the course of the year to be involved yes, with you guys? that's great. Well, the first step is to hear the vision, hear what is possible. And, of course, you just have now by me sharing what is possible yeah. and, and right. hearing the story about what Matthew did in his school and for everyone to know, uh, youth pastors out there, that this is possible for your students to do, and, in fact, Hundreds of students are doing this right now, both in the, you know, throughout the country and here in the Chicagoland area. So be encouraged. There are like-minded students making this happen right now, like Matthew. And so you've heard the vision. We would love for you to head over to our website, which is decisionpoint.org. There you're going to find um, all the information you need. There's tabs up at the top of that web page where you'll see for students, for them to get the information, and for students to even click and say, hey, I want to be involved. I want to get help and get instruction how I can do this in my school. So if they go to the student mm-hmm. tab, they're going to see a button. They can actually sign up to uh, become a decision point leader and what That's happens cool. then, we'll reach out to them, we'll give them all of the free tools, resources, and even coaching to help them do that. And if you're a pastor listening, there's a tab on that webpage as well for pastors, for churches. Click there. We want to give you and equip you as the spiritual mentor in their life all the tools that you need to coach your own students, your own church members of mm. how they can mm. do it. And we would love to support you in that. So you already know how to, awesome. to disciple. You already have those relationships. Right. Yeah. So we want to just give you a few tools that you can really maximize your ministry efforts to disciple your students, and then also to reach out to the teens in your community through your students, equipping them and build That's a bridge awesome. to your church. Oh, that is so exciting, Kathy. We just love the ministry of Decision Point and all the things that you're doing Mm -hmm. and and resourcing both students and pastors. So thank you so much for your work. Again, that website is decisionpoint.org. And Kathy Craig is the Director of Church and Ministry Partnerships for Decision Point. Kathy, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Kathy. Brian, uh, you know... Even though I don't love Twitter, I find myself scrolling along Twitter every once in a while. And I was kind of stopped in my tracks by a tweet from Caitlin Scheiss, or Shess, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Okay. She's an author that I know. She may have even been on the show before. I can't remember. But Long time ago. I think okay. before you. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I know her outside of the radio world. I guess I know her from the writing world. But she, uh, you know, you and I are both pastors. We've got a lot of people in ministry that listen. And so this kind of stopped me in my tracks. Here's what she said. One of the most meaningful things a pastor has ever said to me was my name. Mm. I don't remember a lot of sermons, but I remember when a pastor remembers me. Mm. It feels like Jesus who must have had, who must have said Mary's name so much that when he said it after the resurrection, she recognized him. 
and um, the responses we can talk about in a minute. But this struck me, Brian, as uh, really, really simple and yet deeply profound. I want to know your thoughts about it before I dive into mine. Uh, I, I think we put so much pressure on ourselves as pastors to be like, the greatest communicator and the yeah. greatest theologian and the <laughs> right. greatest administrator and the right. greatest leader. I'm this visionary that when I read this, it is a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I know that I can do? I can mm-hmm. be, I can look people in the eye and listen to their story and do my best to remember their names. I tend to be bad. I make a joke of it about how bad I am with remembering people's yeah. names. Yeah. But what she's describing here is certainly not rocket science. Like we right. can all do this. Unfortunately, a lot of times we like to think of ourselves as too busy. Totally. To, uh, no people stories, no yes. people's names, this yes. or that. Uh, but at the core, she is like, like she's an author. She is right. Duke Divinity, I believe mm-hmm. a doctoral student at Duke Divinity. Yeah. She's got her master's from Dallas Seminary. Like she's. I almost said a big deal, but like, she's not like just your, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a, the simpleton going to church and I like when my pastor knows my name. Yeah. And and for some reason that even raises the bar for me. Like you would think somebody like her would be like when my pastor has re- correct theology or this, mm-hmm. she's just like, here's how much it meant to me when my pastor knew my name. I think this reminds me of, and I like to downplay the, the office of the pastor, you know? Yeah. Uh, like I want to be just another one of the people. Right. Uh, but this reminds us of the importance of it, of the, That's of true. where people hold it. That's and true. It, and pastors out there do the low hanging fruit and easy mm. work, and it's going to pay huge dividends for you. It doesn't mean that you're not, don't try to improve as a speaker or a leader or right. all these other things right. I mentioned, but don't do it um, at the cost of grabbing coffee with people in your church, remembering yeah. people's stories, yeah. remembering their names. Like that's, that is the essence of what we are called to do. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I feel like this tweet is really about the role of the pastor. And, you know, we talk a lot on this show about kind of the celebrity pastor culture and in you know, maybe it's a stereotype, maybe not, but the celebrity pastor doesn't know the people's names. You know Mm -hmm, what I mean? Like mm -hmm. he or she's the dynamic leader on the stage, given some like killer sermons and like drawing people in, but like, are you known one-on-one by that pastor? Do they know your name? Likely not depending on the size of the church. They might know a small number of people's names and that's not to tear down the celebrity pastor, but I think it goes back to say what you're saying, Brian, which is like, Don't underestimate, I think, the power of just like knowing your people that you're shepherding. And that is in and of itself a powerful, influential ministry. And you said this so beautifully at the start. Like, I think we do spend so much time trying to create like a new novel sermon or this way of discipleship that's going to be groundbreaking or you know, whatever. And at the end of the day, like people want to be seen, known and loved. Absolutely. And I, and I, it, I go ahead. I was just going to say it's um, like we I was just having this talk with uh, some of the leaders at our church about uh, name tags. Right. Like mm. and we were this sounds so cheesy, but we might do a month later in the year where everyone wears a name tag. No, and just I, going, I think it's a great idea. Name tag Sunday. Yep. Exactly. Just going, hey, 
go mm-hmm. out there and now we've taken away that barrier. But part yeah. of it's for me. Part right. of it for me as a pastor to go, okay, right. I know that you think I know your name and I should know your name. Yes. But I don't. This is also the power of names. Like mm. this is the power of being known, mm. right? As you who wrote the book called Known. Right. Uh, it is the ability to walk into a place whether there's a hundred people there or a thousand people mm-hmm. there. And when somebody says your name, mm-hmm. they're saying, I value you enough to know you and yes. remember you. Yes. And that I'm, I'm, I want that, um, that connection with you. Yeah. I'm not about the guy on the stage or the woman, you know, singing mm-hmm. or whatever else. I, I, I want to know who you are. I'm going to yeah. look you in the eye and hear your story. That's what it means to be in community, yeah. the church, whether you're a church of, like I said, a thousand or a hundred, right. right. that doesn't matter. Figure out a way where people feel known to the point where their name is remembered. Yeah. And that helps them feel welcomed and like they belong. I think, Brian, I, I struggle with this one because it is hard to remember everybody's name. So I actually love, I've been at a church in the past, Kevin and I were on staff at a church in the past where they would do a name tag Sunday once a year. And it was Mm -hmm. awesome because then there was no, like, there's no shame. There's no sheepishness. Like just, we're all going to wear our name tags and we're all going to help get to know each other's names. Um, but I, I think as an introvert, I do struggle with this. Like, it's not even so much for me, like ego. I don't want to get to know you. It's kind of like, I, I'm actually, I love to go on stage and preach. And then I'm like deeply shy. Like I sort of want to like get out of there as soon as possible because that uh, as an introvert, I am overwhelmed in like social situations like that. And so I think even for the introvert, I think it's important to remember that these moments matter deeply for other people's souls Yes, and, and not to, um, just because you're feeling uncomfortable, imagine what people coming into your church are feeling and don't just like brush aside the opportunity to get to know people's names. Yes, the other yes. thing that's mentioned on this Twitter thread, and I, I've experienced this as well, um, people are talking about how when they take the Lord's Supper, they take mm. communion, when their pastor, their elder, their priest, whoever it is, will say, uh, you know, the Lord's body broken for you, blood shed for you, Tom. You know, and yes. say that person's name. What a what a meaningful experience something yes. like that is as well. There's so much power in, like you said, just knowing people's names and naming them, I think has a way to help people feel very loved. Yeah. And just think of yourself, right? Like if you mm. didn't, uh, if this is going to sound really silly and this doesn't have to do with my name so much, but I think it makes the difference. I go regularly to the Dunkin' Donuts up the street from the church, drive through, you know, when, yeah. then we do the show and you'll always see me carrying a cup. Yep. And uh, they've, they've started to recognize me and they know uh, that I get an iced tea. They don't know my name, but they know yeah. my order. Yeah. And the lady at the window who's often there jokes with me when I come through. Oh, fun. That is different than me going to a different Dunkin' Donuts and just, yes. I get the, I could get the same iced tea. Right. But it's a different experience. The church yeah. is supposed to be a place where we are recognized. We are known. Mm. If, again, if you're in a huge church, then you have to figure out a way so that people can be known in this mm-hmm. way. It doesn't always have to be the senior pastor who knows every you know 2,000 right. people's names. Right. But somebody should know their name. Somebody yeah. should know their story. Somebody yeah. should know what's going on. This is, this is the essence of when we talk about community. This mm. is what we mean. Uh, yep. Such, such a good kind of... Uh, inspiring and convicting word i think for all of us we are so glad that you have been with us today it's the end of the show the end of every show we love to bring you something encouraging or challenging 
Something to put a smile on your face. I think we'll go with challenging slash inspiring on this one, Brian. We're going to talk yes. about shoulds. S-H-O-U-L-D and the power of shoulding. You said you had kind of a funny story. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it made me think there was a time I preached a sermon and one of the kind of, it wasn't the point of the sermon, but one of them was that shoulds and oughts are not good motivators. Hmm. Uh, that I was talking about motivation, right? And yeah. I, if I remember right, the purpose of that sermon was to talk about the motivation of awe, that when, when we are in mm-hmm. awe of God, throughout scripture, we see this kind of awe being the fuel for good times and bad, right? To yeah. live on mission. Think of yeah. Isaiah and Isaiah 6 being called mm-hmm. up into the heavens and it's that good. kind of thing. Um, and I, I believe in what I said, I, I, yeah. you know, but afterwards, somebody who was more conservative theologically, this, mm-hmm. he was like, he really pushed back on me and was like, listen. I think shoulds and oughts are kind of um, almost like the guardrails of our faith. Like, Oh, interesting. You, uh, eventually, you need to tell people what you can and can't do. And I said, yeah, but eventually that doesn't compel you to keep doing those things. Right. And it was, right. it was this big disconnect. He did not end up agreeing with me. Interesting. But I do believe that when it comes to shoulds and oughts, that it's not, those are not good primary motivators. Yeah. Obviously, there are times where I have to tell my children, do this, you can't mm-hmm. do this, right? You mm-hmm. shouldn't cross the street without right. looking both right. ways. You right. shouldn't touch a hot stove. Right. You should clean your room. You should. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that one hit too close to home in my family right there. Oh, really? Uh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> but it, it is ultimately, if we want our faith to be growing in this, that I don't think shoulds and oughts are the ultimately the best motivator for long-term growth and commitment. Yeah, I think you're right because what happens is ultimately when you don't live up to the the should or the ought, you feel guilty. It becomes a form of legalism. And mm-hmm. so certainly there are things we ought to do, period. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's just the reality of life. But we need to have a why behind them that's compelling beyond like, oh, I just do this because I have to. That's when you start living sort of in this like guilt ridden place. So I I would right. agree with I would agree with you. I guess I can kind of see the heart of what this person's saying, but you're not saying so do whatever you want to do. Right. You're saying that's not that shouldn't be the primary motivator, at least for the Christian. Um, so Jeannie Stevens, who we had on the show last week, maybe two weeks ago. Yes. Uh, she has a new book out called What's Here Now. She was over at Propel Women uh, talking about this very concept, the concept of should. And um, she says, shoulds are everywhere. I should floss more. I should drink less coffee and more water. I should exercise more. She says, these shoulds seem innocuous. They aren't trying to sabotage your life. But it's the persistent and more damaging shoulds that many of us allow to have obligation bossing us around. Like a squatter taking up free room and board in our minds, obligation leaves us overwhelmed and overthinking about our decisions. Mm. Then here's, she goes on to say this. The research is clear. In almost every direction you look, people are feeling higher level of stress, anxiety, and mental exhaustion. That's something you and I have talked about, Brian. Then she goes mm-hmm. on to say, burnout is rampant. And we feel like we can't keep up with all of our responsibilities. With obligation fatigue weighing heavy, we still answer the damaging call these silent shoulds have Mm. on our lives. Do you agree with that? I I do. I think shoulds, they they are a weight. They weigh us down. It is... um... 
again, there are things that we should do. And mm-hmm. it's not that, like you said, it's not like we're trying to rip all things off and be like, oh, do whatever you want. Yeah. The question becomes, what is compelling motivation over mm. time? What is going to be that fuel uh, in my marriage, in my parenting, yeah. uh, but in, for the sake of this conversation, in my uh, my sanctification, in my growth, in my following of Jesus, what's going to be compelling? And I think things like awe and things like beauty and yeah. things like thankfulness and yeah. worship, these are going to, you know, as I reflect upon who mm. Jesus is and what he's done for us, then then I, I am compelled to follow him. And I know mm. that, that that doesn't always work well because we're fallen humans who yeah. forget things. Right. But if it's just, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that you should read your Bible. You shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't drink alcohol or right. have sex. You should do like that. Mm. Eventually we, I think eventually we push back and rebel against the shoulds in our lives at some point. We need a more mm. beautiful picture. We need a more compelling yeah. kind of motivation and cause. It's interesting. I'm reading this book now by Kurt Thompson and it's called The Soul of Desire. And one of the questions that he asked the readers, um, he's a therapist, so he says he, he asks this to those he is doing counseling with, but he says like, what is the beautiful thing that you and God want to create together? And what he's trying to get people to move away from is this same idea of like um, the burdens, the obligations, the uh, anxiety, like instead of seeing life as like, oh, all these things I have to do and I feel so weighed down. Like what if you kind of positioned yourself as like, okay, God, what like beautiful thing do you want to create with me? What mm-hmm. beautiful thing are we going to make of this life together? And I, I feel like that's what you're talking about, being motivated by worship, beauty, awe, something different than just like, okay, these are the right things to do, so I better do them. And there's nothing wrong with doing right things. Not at all. Um, but it, it there is like a, a posture difference between freedom, I think, and imprisonment at the end of the day, depending on what your, um, the, your motivation is. Mm-hmm. What Jeannie Stevens kind of wraps up by, she's talking about um, the Apostle Paul. She mentions Romans 13, 8. She says, the Apostle Paul is clear. We are not called to be a people that live under the weight and burden of obligated shoulds. She's quoting Romans 13, 8 here. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever Mm. loves others has fulfilled the law. She goes on to say this. Love never operates out of obligation. Love operates out of choice. Love is the overwhelming reality of a God that gave his son, not because of obligation, but because Mm. of grace. Love enables us to choose what we otherwise would not choose. Should says yes, even when yes is not best. Should says you have no choice. Love always says you can choose. So instead of all of the shoulding that so many of us are doing, let's choose a different path. Let's choose the path of love. Mm. That, I, I thought that was really, really compelling. Yes. Um, you know, that should says yes, even when yes is not best. Should says you have no choice, but love gives you a choice. So, Brian, for our our listeners out there who may be feeling a lot of the weights of the shoulds they've put on themselves or the world has put on them, what do you think a first step is to kind of like shed those shoulds, if you will? There you go. There you go. I think it is. Uh, let's talk. Let's take our faith, right? Let's take. Let's put this in the realm of of our devotion and our following of Jesus. I really do. I said it before. I really do think the key component is awe. And so Mm. I think it's to be reminded of who God is, um, who you are, who he calls you, uh, what Jesus has done for you. Uh, Sometimes when, like when my faith is stagnant, apathetic, 
it's not because I'm not doing the right things. It's because I've I, my view of God has gotten really small. Yeah. And so I, I think, uh, what can you do this weekend? Fourth of July weekend. You probably have some time off. Mm. What can you do this weekend to grow your awe of God? Mm, that's um, good. To be reminded of. God's majesty and the grace that he has shown us through Jesus Christ and all that we've been given. And then I think that's going to motivate us to do the things we're supposed to do and to do Mm. those things. Um, That's where I'd go. You know, I I would, I would feel the freedom to go, okay, uh, what can I do Hmm. action uh, to, to grow my views, to grow my awe of God. And I Mm. think that that's a great spot to start. Yep. Oh, it's such a good word for us, Brian. Thanks for that. And thank you to Jeannie Stevens for writing that article. No more shoulds. And thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from four to 6 PM for Brian Fromm. I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.